Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 the world is a complicated place you need someone to expose the political fakers fixers and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all that person is dan proft and this is the dan proft show Welcome to this edition of the Dan Prop Show. Thanks for joining us. I hope everyone had a, a great weekend and a safe weekend, although uh, it was a disturbing weekend in Atlanta as a uh, 20-something African-American gentleman named Richard Brooks was shot dead in a Wendy's parking lot. This after police respond to a call of a man asleep in his car in the Wendy's drive-thru, so you understand why they were called and why they responded. And as I did on the morning show in Chicago, I co-host, I want to make sure people hear the entirety or something approximating the entirety of the exchange, the beginning of the interaction between Brooks and Atlanta police all the way until the shooting that left Mr. Brooks dead, because it's just important to have some sense of the timeline here, as well as the tone. This was not a confrontational interaction at first. And understand when it became a confrontational interaction, because it speaks to this common denominator with all of these shootings. And it's no not black and white talking about police involved shootings. The common denominator in the shootings that have a national profile has been what noncompliance by the suspect. And that is not to say that every shoot police shoot is a good shoot. And frankly, I will foreshadow. I don't believe this shooting was a justified shooting, but it's still the element of noncompliance. So, yes, we can talk about what officers should or should not have done, but isn't it necessary to also include in this conversation national dialogue, the conversation parents should have with their children, noncompliance? There's a reason we have courts of law. There's a reason we have administrative bodies where citizens can file complaints against the police. That's where you settle disputes, not on the street, particularly when it comes to a law enforcement officer. So here's how it began. The uh, first officer arriving on the scene, Officer Devin Bronson, he uh, starts by knocking on Richard Brooks's window to wake him up. Oh, oh, what's my man? Hey, you good? You don't need a ambulance or anything like that? Are you just tired? All right, man, just, just I'll move my car. Just pull up, just pull somewhere and take it now. All right. <laughs> I don't want to deal with this dude right now. Hey, how much did I drink tonight? Not much? How much is not much? Uh, about a drink, about 12 today. Alright, hey, do you have your license on you real quick? Yeah. Alright. Just, just relax the car. What are you, uh, are you just are you here for a visit or what's, uh... I'm visiting. Where are you visiting? Uh, my mother's grave site. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. How, how long has she uh, passed for? It's, it's been probably about a year and a half now, but... Okay, I'm sorry to hear my that. My birthday's just passed, and uh, my girlfriend's birthday just yeah. passed, but I, I went to visit her. And yeah. 
So just gives you some context that there was not confrontation. There was not antagonism from Brooks. There was not antagonism from the officer. You know, you're asleep in the Wendy's drive through and you shouldn't be surprised to get a knock on your window. Right. So after that exchange between the first officer on scene and Brooks, second officer Garrett Rolfe arrives, clearly a senior officer because he's the one who ultimately conducts the field sobriety test. This is an obvious suspected DUI, as you could tell from the exchange. And so Officer Bronson gets Officer Rolfe up to speed. Found him passed out in the parking lot. sitting here. So he was in the drive? Yeah, he's, he's on, car's on. Took me like a few minutes to wake him up. Kept knocking, opened the door, shook him. Woke up super groggy. Got you know, pretty good smell of alcoholic beverage coming out of the car. Eyes are watery and glassy. Sorted his words. Wasn't sure where he was. And... Uh, Tell me he had one drink, he said earlier. So then Rolf proceeds to administer the field sobriety test with the acquiescence of Brooks. Put the choice to him. You know, you don't you can refuse field sobriety tests. You're going to be taken into custody, but you can refuse them. Of course, he said he would do the field sobriety tests, including the breathalyzer. And there was a determination made that he was driving under the influence, a suspected driving under the influence. So he was going to be taken into custody. And it was all customary and room temperature until Officer Rolf attempted to handcuff Mr. Brooks and take him into custody. I can just go home. I have my daughters there right now. My three, my daughter's birthday was yesterday. Hold on, Mr. Brooks. Will you take a preliminary breath test for me? It's yes or no. I don't want to refuse anything. Uh, it's yes or no. It's completely up to you. Yes, I will. Okay, just wait here while I grab. What, what kind eat. of drinks did you have? I'm not sure. It's something she ordered. She said top shelf or whatever. Top shelf what? I'm not sure. It was, like I said, it was her birthday and... You had about one and a half drinks, but you don't remember what kind of drinks they were? No, sir. All right. I really don't, Mr. Roth. All right. I think you've had too much to drink to be dry. Put your hands on your back for me. Here, put your hands on your back. Now the tussle. Hey, hey, stop fighting. Stop fighting. Stop fighting. Stop fighting. Stop fighting. And of course, this is the crux of the issue. So there's he resists arrest. There's a scramble on the ground between Mr. Brooks and the two officers. He is able to obtain one of the officers tasers. He flees. And this is the video most people have seen, the audio most people have heard. I suspect most if you haven't listened to Salem radio, you probably just saw this last couple of seconds you heard. So Mr. Brooks flees. He's got a taser. Officer Rolf is in pursuit. Brooks turns around, seemingly attempts to fire the taser at the officer. The officer fires his weapon and kills Brooks. And so was it a good shoot? Well, we know the officer, Officer Rolf, has been fired. The um, responding officer has been suspended, that the police chief has resigned. I'm sure the police chief was given basically a window or stairs choice from Atlanta Mayor Bottoms. But was it a good shoot? And here again, you have to get into the reasonable fear for one's life standard. And so all of the facts matter. And the fact is that the suspect was fleeing. 
the fact is that the uh, officer pursuing him had a partner right behind him. You could hear towards the end there that Officer Bronson was on the radio ostensibly calling for help, more support, because one of the things you can do to de-escalate and one of the things police routinely do to de-escalate a situation with a recalcitrant or resistant suspect, bring overwhelming force to bear. So the suspect realizes he has no choice but to comply. And that's what could have happened, particularly, again, with the suspect fleeing and the officer giving chase. Even the argument is made he could have been tased, the officer, then disabled, and then the suspect could get your the officer's weapon and use the weapon against him. Right. But that's not the situation when you have a partner right behind you. And that was the situation here, which is why I think there will be some police, perhaps a lot of police that argue technically it was a good shoot, but substantively it wasn't a good shoot. It wasn't necessary to use lethal force in that circumstance. One thing with the taser in terms of whether it was used and whether, you know, what voltage it discharged, if it did even hit the officer that was in pursuit, doesn't sound like it did. But regardless, tasers have a recording device in them, shows exactly when the trigger's pulled, how many times and for how many seconds it's putting the charge out. That information is downloaded when the taser is plugged into the computer It shows times and everything. So all that will ultimately come out. One other thing to note is some studies suggesting how unreliable tasers are in being able to disable a suspect. It just uh, speaks to, yes, tasers can present a lethal force situation. But as was the case when the two officers tried to subdue Brooks before he fled, the tasers didn't subdue him. So I'm not uh, passing judgment on the complication on how complicated the job is for police here, but you ha- and I'm not putting myself in Officer Rolf's position, but you do have to look at the rules of engagement and the, the use of force protocols of the police department and then assess the conduct of the officer with all the facts attendant to the particular circumstance and make a determination. I'm sure politics played a role in his immediate termination, virtually immediate termination, And it may play a role in the charging of Officer Rolf in that shooting after the uh, autopsy came back, ruling it a homicide. Um, And so this is going to spark continued conversation about exactly the nature of police reform at both the local uh, state and well, all three local, state and federal levels with various uh, authority to go from everything from you know tying certain reforms to federal funding of police departments to uh, as we've seen in Minneapolis to defunding the police department and reimagining it as something completely different altogether which is in process we'll pick it up there right after this on the damn prop show listen to the podcast of the show at danproffshow.com Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the uh, Richard Brooks case out of Atlanta and uh, the uh, legal and political and uh, civil fallout, really, from uh, that shooting and the death of Mr. Brooks. Uh, Tim Scott, senator from South Carolina, Republican, the only black Republican United States senator, and it should be reminded uh, the Democrats have two black 
United States senators. So there's a, a Darth generally. But Tim Scott uh, over the weekend on Face the Nation uh, was discussing his proposed police reforms. But before that he got to that, he was asked about the uh, the Brooks shooting in Atlanta had this to say. Well, it seems like the mayor says it was an excessive use of force. That's really the question. The question is, when the a suspect turned to fire the taser, what should the officer have done? Um, one of the challenges that we have in these split-second decisions is the need for more training. That's why the de-escalation aspect of my bill and the House bill is so critically important, so that we don't re- revert back to basic fear plus adrenaline leads us to the genetic code, so to speak. That's a hard balance to to achieve. So in order for us to provide more opportunities to de-escalate these situations and to reduce the use of force, we have to have effective training. That situation is certainly a, a far less clear one than the ones that we saw with George Floyd and several other ones around the country. It's important you said that because it's, um, you know, all these cases are treated the same when the facts are very different in each one. Uh, a George Floyd or a Walter Scott are really significantly different cases than a Michael Brown, for example. And so is the case here a difficult one? Um, I've given you my impression. Uh, Other people, reasonable people can come to different impressions. But uh, there is going to be this continued uh, unrest uh, and there's going to be this continued scrutiny on any sort of case that fits the profile of the story the media wants to tell. This is a situation that repeats itself over and over. Uh, And there was another case, by the way, that was overshadowed by Atlanta and because it didn't result in a death, thankfully. But in Fairfax, Virginia, a white cop has been arrested after body cam footage emerged of him using a stun gun while kneeling on a black man. The policeman in Virginia charged with assault after he was uh, seen using unacceptable force on a man who appears to be disoriented and even screams, I can't breathe. Uh, the officer in question, a, a Tyler Timberlake from the Fairfax County Police Department. And if you watch this video, which doesn't translate to audio nearly as well as the Brooks case, which is why I'm just describing it. But if you watch the video, you have a guy who's disoriented. He called for an ambulance because he said he needed oxygen. He's under the influence of some kind of substance or perhaps he's got some, uh, you know, basically intellectual challenges just because of the way that he's interacting with police and meandering in the street. It's just not normal. If you watch it, you'll understand what I'm saying. And the problem here again, and it's it, there's a, a, a bit of a similarity to the Brooks case, is that the officers who are unseen are trying to reason with uh, the uh, the man in in need uh, who had made the call. Apparently, uh, the one EMT says, for example, "I'm just here to help you. Just tell me what you need." They're trying to, you know, engage him rationally to try to get him to give them some kind of indication and then get some kind of compliance so they can provide whatever help he may need. Uh, So there was a situation, they were de-escalating the situation and then Timberlake rolls up and uh, sort of without warning, it's actually a bit jarring when you watch the video, uh, deploys his taser uh, and brings the guy down and then takes him into custody. 
Uh, and it's just it just seemed unnecessary. Uh, so here again, this is the discussion that Tim Scott is trying to have on the Hill with other senators, Republican and Democrat, uh, about uh, police reforms that can be advanced that uh, may perhaps do a better job of demilitarizing the police and even, frankly, non-law enforcement agencies that have been militarized over the last couple of decades, as well as uh, de-escalation training. Maybe. Maybe that's an issue. Maybe it's a, a, a resource issue in, in terms of actual number of police officers in particular areas. Uh, but but in, a, in lieu or I, I should say you either kind of go that direction right now when it comes to major urban centers, you take a hands off approach, which Trump has indicated he won't do, which is to say, hey, Seattle, you want to create an autonomous zone? You want to turn over six blocks of your city to uh, the mob? Then that's your choice. You have the resources to assert control of that area in Seattle. If you don't want to, then don't. That's up for Seattle residents and Washington state authorities to figure out. Minneapolis, you want to eliminate your police department and reimagine it from the ground up? Okay. Uh, Trump has said, uh, you know, he's... Police departments won't be defunded. And if uh, Seattle doesn't get its act together, then he will uh, uh, intercede. Should he? I don't think so. In part, that's what federalism is. This is not uh, sending in the National Guard to uh, execute uh, a Supreme Court decision for desegregation, for example, in Little Rock. That's not what this is. This is uh, self-determination. It's the Minneapolis City Council that voted to defund the police. It's the Seattle City Council and mayor and governor that uh, have ceded that six block area to the mob. Uh, If that's what they want to do, then they're number one. uh, It's a political will question, not a resource question. Number two, it's really a local law enforcement matter, not a federal one. And number three, there's a political remedy for the voters in Seattle and Washington State and Minneapolis. So, uh, you know, Ilhan Omar, Representative Ilhan Omar, uh, on with uh, Jake Tapper over the weekend, saying this about the Minneapolis Police Department as currently constituted for the time being. You can't really reform um, a department that that is rotten to to the root. What you can do is rebuild. Uh, And so this is our opportunity, you know, as a city to come together, have the conversation of what public safety looks like, who enforces the most dangerous crimes that take place in our community. And just like San Francisco did. Yeah, just like San Francisco did reimagine policing, just like you have local uh, state's attorneys in Philadelphia, in Cook County, in Illinois, in San Francisco, uh, changing the culture of prosecution in those regions to one of non-prosecution. Those are local decisions to be fleshed out by local and state authorities. If I were the president, I'd stay out of it and say exactly that. You chart your own course and people in those communities or looking at those communities can decide if that's a community in which they want to live. All right, coming up after the break, we'll transition and talk to our friend and uh, my colleague, the great Michael Medved, 
about uh, the situation in Seattle and whether or not he's going to relocate and become a resident of Chaz or whatever its name is on this uh, Monday. More to the Dan Prof Show coming up with Michael Medved. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. What's going on in the uh, newly minted independent nation of Chaz in the center of Seattle? You'll recall uh, some are taking the occupation of that uh, six-block area in the heart of Seattle more seriously than others. The person seeming to take it the the least seriously is the mayor of Seattle. And incredibly, Jenny Durkin is a former U.S. attorney. Um, We've got four blocks in Seattle that you just saw pictures of that is more like a block party atmosphere. It's not an armed takeover. It's not a military junta. We will make sure that we can restore this, but we have block parties and, and the like in this part of Seattle all the time. It's it's known for that. In her interview with Chris Cuomo, that answer was so confounding that it didn't get past Chris Cuomo. That's how bad that answer was. And he said, well, normally in block parties, you don't concede a police precinct to the block partiers. Uh, so how long is this going to go on? How long do you think Seattle in those few blocks looks like this? I don't know. We could have the summer of love. Well, tell that to the police who was supposed to be in that precinct, though. But I understand your sentiment, Mayor. You do? That makes one of us block party. Uh, Carmen Best, she's allegedly a uh, police chief, and she's the police chief of Seattle. She uh, had this to say on um, State of the Union, I think, with Tapper over the weekend. What I believe, especially after I was at a march yesterday, or the day before yesterday, with Black Lives Matter, and I was looking at the, uh, the 60,000 people that were there, um, signs saying, you know, defund the police, uh, stop police brutality, uh, you know, no qualified immunity. And there were thousands of people carrying those particular signs. And I just realized it was a, a moment, a, an epiphany, that this is a pivotal moment in history. We are going to move in a different direction, and policing will never be the same as it was before. Policing will never be the same as it was before. I mean, that may be in some good ways. It may be in a lot of bad ways as well. And by the way, just in case uh, there was any confusion, it's a street festival. No, we don't consider it a street festival. So the the activists are a little bit offended by the propaganda of their allies in the media. It's very interesting. And for those saying it's not really abolish the police, it's reimagining the police and so forth. Uh, Mariami Kaba, who is an activist and the director of Project NIA, a grassroots group that works to end youth incarceration, writing in the New York Times over the weekend, yes, we mean literally abolish the police. We can't simply change our job descriptions to focus on the worst of the worst criminals. That's not what they're set up to do. I've been advocating for the abolition of the police for years. Cut the number of police in half. Cut their budget in half. That's a start. But yes. When we say abolish the police, what we're working towards is literally abolishing the police. And um, we want a country that is built on cooperation instead of individualism, on mutual aid instead of self-preservation. What would the country look like if it had billions of extra dollars to spend on housing, food and education for all? That's the vision. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Michael Medved, host of the Michael Medved Show, member of USA Today's Board of Contributors and author of God's Hand on America, Divine Providence in the Modern Era. Michael, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
No, thank you. And uh, I can tell you I'm about 12 miles away right now from the what used to be known as the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, where they apparently changed the name yesterday to the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest. Correct. It's a CHOPPA. Chop. Yeah, Chapa. except there's struggle about that. I mean, as there isn't any revolutionary regime... <laughs> Uh, yes. There's struggle about whether it stands for Capitol Hill Occupied Protest or Capitol Hill Organized Protest. But the Chaz name, there was an effort yesterday to take down the Chaz sign about welcome to the Capitol Hill Occupied Autonomous Zone. And there was a struggle over that. Well, nobody called the cops. Well, I'll tell you. Yeah, I'll tell you what. Um, that's actually encouraging they're starting to focus on marginal issues just like Congress does. So maybe, well, wait, wait. maybe there's hope for them yet. on marginal issues from the beginning. <laughs> it's, look, the terrible thing about this, and this goes for Chicago as well, we've had very, very few unequivocal successes in terms of government policy in the United States over the last 50 years. I, let's face it. One unequivocal success in governmental policy was what people call broken windows policing, which is based on the studies of James Q. Wilson, who said, look, it's really, really important to get police to enforce things like laws against sleeping on the street, because when that happens to a neighborhood, it sends a message to bad guys, and there are bad guys out there, that there's no authority here, that all order has broken down, that this is the equivalent of the Wild West and you can do anything you want, and so, of course, as Carmen Best, our police chief in Seattle, said, as a result, a rape and murder and assault, it all goes up. And who are you going to call? When we come back with uh, Michael Medved, uh, we turn our attention to Raz Simone. Closet conservative? Question mark. More with Michael Medved when we return. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Michael Medved, and I'm just trying to be optimistic about uh, Raz Simone's stewardship of Chaz in the center of Seattle and his uh, co-founding fathers and mothers. So they they erected a border wall, and so maybe Trump will support border wall funding for Chaz. (laughs) And also they uh, believe in the need to have weapons in order to uh, provide order within the corporate brownies of Chaz. So those are encouraging signs to a fledgling nation. Yeah, well, the thing is it's not so well enforced. We have a dear friend who has a license to carry, and he's actually an NRA uh, instructor. Instructor. Yeah. Yeah. And he's also a former Marine officer, and he's also a professional opera singer, okay? Nice All range. kinds of qualifications. Yeah. He went up there to see for himself. And he said, again, media distortions are insane. And, and by the way, including Fox News, I hate to say it, but the truth of the matter is he found it not difficult at all to go just walk right in. There are no borders in the CHOP or Chaz or the Capitol Hill area at all. And what there is is a great a congregation of homeless people, a great congregation of camps on sidewalks, uh, boarded up businesses, graffiti everywhere, trash everywhere, because, of course, nobody's going to go up there 
under the current circumstance and try to clean things up. And what's really terrible is that like there's a new Whole Foods up there, right? And there are all kinds of businesses and some of the top-rated restaurants in the city. And, and just as things were reopening and we were getting back to normal, well, what, it, what passes for normal in Seattle, there's this. It's a, a, a terrible, terrible thing because we've had a huge building boom downtown. We've had huge gentrification. There are people living in Chaz who have been paying when people paid rent once upon a time, who've been paying for apartments. So it's three, $4,000 a month. And now, again, with the pandemic and with the general chaos in the city and no enforcement of absolutely anything, some of the landlords <laughs> who have to pay their bills for having built new buildings, for instance, that they're going to rent to people. The economic impact on the entire region and the entire country is going to be devastating. It's not really the summer of love. And by the way, I'm old enough to remember the real summer of love, which was a disaster. And a lot of people dying of drug overdoses and blitzing their minds out and their cognitive abilities out with LSD, it wasn't so great. Well, maybe Jenny Durkin has a different recollection. <laughs> she, if she has any recollections. And just with respect to that police precinct, and I mean, the fact that police chief and the mayor are not on the same page with respect to that police precinct is remarkable. And I, I mean, that is a Neville Chamberlain quality instance of appeasement by the civilian political authorities in that city. I, it's incredible. So whatever's happening in Chaz is almost secondary to the idea that you would have police evacuate a precinct that they could otherwise defend because of PR reasons. It seems the press, you know, suggesting the police response to people throwing rocks and, and everything else at police uh, was the police were overreacting. And so this is why they ultimately uh, this is one of the storylines, at least we've heard ultimately why the political decision was made to abdicate the precinct, even though they could have held the precinct. I mean, but that is just an unbelievable surrender to the mob. No, there's no question about it. And look, the real problem here is the existing political structure. There isn't a single even moderate voice on the Seattle City Council. Things range between the socialist Shama Swant, who everybody else does seem to hate, who literally, who wants to have uh, the people take over Boeing. Uh, right. And, and yes. Because they, right. they can make the airplanes better than Boeing can make. Well, well maybe now. I don't, I, look, it's crazy. And her big thing, what should happen is the police should be defunded. Then they should tax Amazon at 50%, right, which is our biggest employer in the city of Seattle. And then with that nirvana, they will provide everybody with a house that the city will pay for. Simple as that. It's very yeah, easy. It's, it's a brilliant government. No, it's completely insane. And the difficulty is we're in an election year. The governor is up for re-election. He's going to win in a huge landslide because of the insane state of the Republican Party, where there are six candidates for governor against him and we have a jungle primary. There may not even be a Republican who clears the primary. Oh, what are the chances you think that maybe NBC could get uh, Kelsey Grammer and David Hyde Pierce back together and they could do <laughs> Frazier, but they, they, he hosts the show in Chaz, like on ham radio? Right. I think that's a terrific idea. The, the, the ironic thing is that in the city of Seattle, what, they had a peaceful protest on, I think it was the, uh, Friday. They had 62,000 people 
And they really did, marching. And that's a pretty big demonstration. And again, what they're negotiating about is very, very major cuts in the police budget, which, of course, is a disaster, could end up leading to a police strike, God forbid. And the idea that right now the mayor is talking seriously about this, and and really the governor has (laughs) tried to keep hands off because in his opposition in election year, what the other candidates are running against, they're running against Seattle. And believe it or not, the majority of population in this state does not live in the city of Seattle. A- any chance you'll relocate to Chaz and run against Raz Simone for a <laughs> warlord of Chaz? No, no, I think Raz has better rap. Uh, <laughs> yeah, though, though everybody here tries to rap. And what's what's crazy about this also <laughs> is all of this is in the name of, of Black Lives Matter, The black population of Seattle has been decreasing with gentrification, Mm. and it was never large to begin with. Uh, Black black population is lower than 10% in the city of Seattle. And uh, those communities, what remains of those communities, would be devastated by the withdrawal of police protection. For all good people and people who, who want to build businesses and build lives and open up schools again, And again, I can't help but think that this entire insanity, and it's probably true in Chicago, is related to people's pent-up energy and everything due to the lockdowns. Mm. He is Michael Medved, host of The Michael Medved Show, member of USA Today's Board of Contributors, author of God's Hand on America, Divine Providence in the Modern Era. Michael, always a treat. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Let's hope we have a great week across the country. Absolutely. Including Chaz. (laughs) Amen. I wish I knew you when I was young. I could have got so high. Now we're here. It's been so long. Two strangers in the bright. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, uh, competing to be the most uh, openly hostile to their own police department in the political class nationally, right there with, although uh, I got to say, Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin isn't really openly hostile to the Seattle police. She just seems to be privately hostile. So maybe Lori Lightfoot, uh, mayor of Chicago, triple threat, as she calls herself, maybe she is at the top of the list. Here's Lori Lightfoot over the weekend with uh, Al Sharpton continuing to beat the drum on behalf of former Black Panther, longtime U.S. Congressman Bobby Rush, against the Chicago Police Department. These police officers are now saying that Bobby Rush invited them into his office. (laughs) It's the most ludicrous thing in the world. And even if that were so, which of course, it's absolutely false. He didn't invite you in for five hours to sleep while everything around you is up in flames. We uh, tackled this on Friday a bit. There's a lot of questions about uh, the incident that she's referencing that occurred on uh, Monday morning in the early hours on June 1st, the day after the most violent day in Chicago in 60 years with 18 people murdered on that uh, Sunday, May 31st alone. But isn't that an odd choice to make? 
to go on national TV. I mean, it is just the Al Sharpton show, but still national TV to call your police officers, including some supervisors involved in this incident, liars. Um, That's very much an open question. And it's a question that she could theoretically relatively easily get the answer to, but she hasn't chosen to do so. It's an interesting choice in a city that is beset by violent crime, isn't it? To be that openly hostile to your police department. What does that message send to the 12,000 plus Chicago police officers well beyond those that were at Bobby Rush's office, as they argue, responding to a call from someone in Rush's camp to come to his office as looting and violence was occurring around it. And then there's this report out by the Chicago Sun-Times of the more than 400 people charged, arrested by Chicago police during the first five days of the curfew after the civil unrest. Seventy five percent of those who were arrested are black, a executive director for Illinois ACLU called it infuriating and tragic. The curfew basically gave the Chicago Police Department carte blanche to continue over-policing people of color. Is that what happened? Mayor Lightfoot? I mean, you're the civilian uh, executive. You have authority over the police department. Is your police department, and also recently minted uh, police superintendent David Brown from Dallas, your police department, black woman, black man, are they over-policing people of color? Should we reduce the police footprint? in majority minority neighborhoods on the south and west sides of Chicago, for example. I mean, these are fellow travelers ideological, ideologically with Mayor Lightfoot. So what say she to this data? Questions I ask that probably will go unanswered thanks to a dutiful Chicago press corps. What will not go unnoticed is the impact of Lightfoot's open hostility to the Chicago Police Department, the impact in those very neighborhoods, she says, as she ran to serve and is working to represent those neighborhoods that have less opportunity and less public safety, those neighborhoods that need the police more. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Proft Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. On uh Starting America anew by uh, taking down all of the statues, maybe uh, eliminating some of the books and artwork. Kirsten Powers writing in the U.S. in USA Today, renaming bases and removing statues that honor racist leaders will help America begin anew. Most Americans were reared on whitewashed fairy tales about the United States' history with race. Were we? Uh, Gosh, I, I don't recall that at all actually from my k through 12 education uh, i i suspect most people of our age and older don't remember that whitewashing that kirsten powers is speaking of either i suggest that maybe from like howard zinn's people's history of the united states forward uh there's a lot of people who have a complete misunderstanding and much ignorance about american history you know, from American history through the lens of neo-Marxism. That's what distorts your understanding of America. Not the education I got, because um, uh, we covered uh, 
the Civil War and slavery. We covered the Revolutionary War, actually, and all of the contextual circumstances, the Civil War, slavery, Jim Crow, civil rights movement, covered that. In in addition to that, um, by the way, school, the sum total of your learning doesn't happen in the classroom. The good schools turn students into lifelong learners by lighting that flame, to borrow from Yates, not filling that pail. And so you read something that's part of a syllabus in a history course, and then that leads you to read a bunch of other things or to consume content online in a bunch of other areas that uh, were sparked by your introduction to a topic. So uh, Kirsten Powers reject her premise to begin with, and this is a premise of the left too, fairy tales. We were all coddled and told fairy tales about America. Wrong. No. Uh, her concluding sentence, the reality is moving statues to museums, renaming buildings, and providing historical context to racist art are not the fall of Rome or the end of America. If we take necessary steps, it will be the opposite, a new beginning. You know, I have no particular fealty to Robert E. Lee, for example, and, uh, you know, some of the military bases that were named for Confederate generals were not done so so much to lionize them as for the purposes of uh, gathering the necessary political support for funding at the time of their 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 inception. Uh, again, the, the the history that uh, Kirsten Powers uh, and others uh, similarly situated don't know, don't understand. I always forget the you know, sort of the political lens to apply, the realpolitik lens, but OK. But um, VDH, as he often does, has an excellent piece in National Review on the topic. And his point is to say, well, what, what's the standard? Rather than a rush to do this by uh, you know, mob acclamation, uh, which statues come down or are, are squirreled away in a museum, uh, which are needed, which are given uh, more uh, context in terms of their introduction. I mean, how, how about like a sensible, thoughtful way to do it? For more on uh, all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Matt Mayer. He's the president of OpportunityOhio.org and contributor to Spectator USA. Matt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, you wrote a piece about uh, Republicans uh, should be reclaiming their history on civil rights, and, uh, and particularly with respect to the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the uh, Republican support for that monumental legislation. But speaking of monuments and monumental legislation, you know, more generally, the discussion of history going on right now against the backdrop of you know, the beheading and defacing of statues. Yeah, look, I mean, I think what we were not taught, uh, frankly, was that it was the Republican Party, uh, the party of Lincoln, right, that that fought the Civil War, that after that, under, you, you know, Ulysses S. Grant really fought aggressively hard for reconstruction of the South, which led to lots of African-Americans being elected to office, including the U.S. Senate, uh, shortly after the Civil War. It was only after uh, the Democrat Party and its people came storming back in the South that we ended up with Jim Crow for 100 years. And then, of course, as you noted, you know, it was Republican support, more than Democrat support, that passed the Civil Rights Act. Unfortunately, the Republican Party kind of allowed that history to be forgotten and not taught. And so 50 years later, you know, you have African-Americans who believe it's the Democrats that are kind of their party rather than the party of Lincoln, the party of Grant, uh, the party that really is what allowed 
kind of African-Americans to, to get to escape the, the bondage of slavery uh, in the shackles of Jim Crow. Um, you uh, write an assessment of Trump's chances to uh, uh, to attract the black silent majority in November. And uh, against that backdrop, uh, Wall Street Journal reporting over the weekend, a uh, analysis done by the National Bureau of Economic Research that finds that from February to April, the number of active black business owners fell 41 percent. Uh, the first estimates of the early stage effects of COVID-19 on small business owners. And you would think that would be a natural constituency for Trump. But, you know, all of these issues are complicated. And the, the complication for Trump is that, you know, he supported the lockdown policies that were enacted during that time period and that uh, resulted in that number. So how do you work around that? Yeah, so I call it the silent minority of the minority, right? I don't think a Republican in my lifetime will get a majority of the African-American vote uh, because it's, there's such an ingrained, uh, erroneous teaching of history. Uh, but, you know, last Monday a poll came out that showed Trump had a 40% approval rating among African-Americans. Um, he doesn't need to get half or more to, to secure the presidency in re-election. He just needs to up his 8% from 2016 to 12 to 15% in key states, and he ends up then making it impossible for the Democrat, for Joe Biden, to find votes to make up those lost votes elsewhere, right? And I think the way for Trump to do that is to talk about the fact that under him, uh, black uh, unemployment went down to record lows, that he has funded historical black colleges in a way few have, that under his economic policies, black businesses were thriving until the Chinese threw out this Wuhan virus that essentially shut down our country. And, and yes, they, it was shut down under Trump, but he, it was something he kind of had to do. So I think there's a way for him to make that pitch. Uh, he just has to, I think, do it the right way and be aggressive and not letting the left, as it always does, characterize the right as, as, as anti-African-American. Uh, Here was uh, Trump at West Point uh, giving a speech to West Point grads. And, and uh, get your assessment of whether this is a good pivot and, frankly, one that's uh, long overdue. It was this school that gave us the men and women who fought and won a bloody war to extinguish the evil of slavery. The army was at the forefront of ending the terrible injustice of segregation. How's that for a start? Yeah, I think he's, you know, maybe he's reading my, my columns, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, 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 that's exactly what we need to start doing uh, on the right. Uh, and not because it's going to get us votes. I want to be clear, Dan and Amy, this is not about winning an election. This is about change, changing and transforming the lives of millions of African-Americans that have been hit with you know, the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and are stuck in a systemic and dysfunctional community that has been run largely by Democrat mayors, Democrat city councils, and Democrat governor states. We've got to go in there and rescue those folks so that they have the same American dream as anybody else, including other African-Americans who have escaped that because of things like affirmative action or because they kept the family intact, avoided drugs, alcohol, you know, violence. Uh, teen pregnancy. So if we can, we got to fix this to, for the right reasons, not to get votes. We got to fix this so that we can transform lives. And that's what's critical. And Trump echoes that theme for the next five months. I think he can get to 12 to 15 percent of the vote because he deserves it, not because he's going to win the win re-election. I hope I want to be clear about that. This is about transforming lives, not winning elections. Uh, since you're uh, in Ohio, uh, which uh, once upon a time, not so long ago, was a swing state it, it, uh, at the start of this election cycle, it was one that the Democrats were prepared to concede. I wonder what um, you uh, sense in terms of the landscape in Ohio and how much that's a bellwether for what you're seeing nationally. 
Um, I think it's still a bellwether, not so much as Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin uh, will be. But look, you know, because Ohio has, you know, places like Toledo, Akron, Canton, Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati, the large urban centers, uh, you're going to have high levels of of African-American voters. Uh, Those are very blue places. And so there's the same vote disadvantage that Trump faces or any Republican faces in any state uh, across the country that's viable, right? New York and California are never viable, so forget about them. But but where they can, where the Democrat, you know, drives up their vote margin and victory by big numbers in the cities, he has to keep that number close enough where then in the su- suburbs and rural areas, he can make up the vote uh, and, and surpass them and win those states. And I think Ohio, he's still in a good position in Ohio, but it's, you know, it's going to be tough in those other states I mentioned. He is Matt Mayer, the president of uh, president of OpportunityOhio.org and contributor to Spectator USA. Matt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Since the uh, Manichaean left loves uh, binaries so much, here's a, a choice. The uh, view of Jonathan Harmon, who is the chairman of the uh, consequential law firm, McGuire Woods, or the view of a uh, very popular comedian, who, who I generally like too, Dave Chappelle, who uh, just released a, a special called 846, 8 minutes, 46 seconds, of course, the time that that Minneapolis, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin had his knee on George Floyd's neck. Let's start with Jonathan Harmon, since most people don't know who he is, and everybody knows who Chappelle is. Jonathan Harmon's a trial lawyer, chairman of McGuire Woods, as I mentioned. He writes in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, when I was 14, someone burned a cross on the lawn of the house across the street. It was September 1979. We lived in an overwhelmingly white Port Jefferson, New York, The Targets, the Andersons, were the only other black family in our neighborhood. Ken Anderson, an Army veteran, led the local NAACP. I later learned it was the fifth cross burning on Long Island that summer. Hate welled up inside me as my parents told me what had happened. I wanted to retaliate against the perpetrator. But then my father taught me a lesson I've never forgotten. After the cross burning, my father, a teacher, didn't give in to anger or hatred. He simply went about his life. He chose not to run. He chose not to change his routines. He chose not to speak out. He chose not to shame or shun the cross burner. He had a strong hunch who it was and even welcomed the hater into our home as before. That's something. Uh, his quiet steadiness wasn't cowardice. My parents were active members of the NAACP. My father marched with King, but his dignified and resolute response was to not allow himself or his family to be taken down by bigotry. His message to my sister and me was simple. Don't hate don't hide. Don't be a victim. Quickly on each of those three. Don't hate. Don't hide. Don't be a victim. Don't hate. Run Dr. King's message. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that, which is the opposite of the prevailing argument being made currently. Don't hide means don't be afraid. Don't retreat from life. I could see where the cross was burned from my bedroom window, writes Jonathan Harmon. And I had to stand by it in the morning when I waited for the school bus. But there was no talk of leaving our home or community. No thought of sending my sister and me to live with friends or relatives until the threat passed. I was the only black kid riding the bus, but there was no mention of police escorts, alternative rides or changing schools. My father wouldn't even drive me to school. His message was that we don't dignify such a lowly act. 
We don't let it worm its way inside of us and transform us from humans to haters. Lastly, and so, uh, so Jonathan got on the bus. Lastly, don't be a victim. Arose from the same impulse. Not surprisingly, reporters approached our home seeking comment. They asked my parents to go on TV, but my father didn't want ugly vandalism to lower our esteem by turning us into bitter victims. He didn't want our family to become famous for being the object of hatred. And Jonathan Harmon subsequently went on to be a West Point cadet and grad. He fought for American Operation Desert Storm. Uh, Of that, he says, that experience gave me empathy for those in uniform, police or military, sworn to serve and protect. I understand some of the pressures facing officers in the field of engagement. He says that, he writes that in this journal op-ed, even as he also describes discrimination that uh, he endured as a student. Uh, He endured after he got out of school, uh, after he got out of the service, after he got out of law school, when it came to things like housing. But uh, today, he is this successful lawyer, clearly, and uh, he writes, I have four children ages 16 to 23. All our home as a consequence of the pandemic. Our dinner discussions have been spirited. Will the same message my father share resonate with my kids and the younger lawyers in the firm? In a world freshly aware of the brutality of institutionalized racism, are my father's words, don't hate, don't hide, don't be a victim, still sage advice? Hmm. Interesting question, particularly about his father's advice and the example he set. My answer would be similar to what Mr. Harmon's is which is to say, well, think about the context in which his father offered him that advice and lived the advice he offered. I mean, if Harmon was 14 in 79, that means he's a product of the 60s and 70s and 80s in terms of his youth and matriculation. And were things better or worse for black Americans in the late 60s and 70s into the 80s? Now think about his father, right, who's 20 or 25 years removed from 1965 when Jonathan Harmon was born, whose formative years were under Jim Crow segregation. And ask yourself, were things better or worse for black Americans institutionally, legally, when Mr. Harmon's father was growing up as compared to when Mr. Harmon was growing up as compared to now for Mr. Harmon's four children aged 16 to 23? Is there really much of a conversation onto that question? So if it was sage advice for Jonathan Harmon from his father, wouldn't it even be more sage advice for Jonathan Harmon to his four kids, given how well Jonathan Harmon turned out? That's one approach. Another response is that offered by Dave Chappelle, at least in part during his 30-minute special I watched. And this was uh, an interesting tangent he went on to talk about black men, ex-police or military, over the last several years, high-profile killings of police officers, indiscriminate killings of police officers by black men in L.A., in uh, Baton Rouge, and, of course, in Dallas. And listen to what Chappelle says of those individuals who committed the murders. Just like they did when they were joining the fucking military, that they were fighting acts of terror. These are our people. These are our countrymen. If I were white and saw one of these men get murdered and I was in the NRA, why wouldn't I stand up for them? A, a, a card-carrying legal gun owner that gets murdered in cold blood because he's black. That's why they don't give a f- 
There's only one time the NRA ever supported an assault weapon ban. You know when it was? It was when the Black Panthers stormed the state capitol with assault rifles in California. Uh, well, just setting aside the NRA for a minute, I mean, that's just uh, the NRA counts. Uh, I don't know how many of its many millions of members, but it's a sig- significant raw number of black Americans as members. Um, I mean, I know black NRA certified instructors, so it's uh, that's a strange take on the NRA and what the NRA, the NRA stands for is Second Amendment rights, regardless of race. Um, but But setting that aside. The rationalization for the indiscriminate killing of anybody. And he's referencing um, Dallas, Baton Rouge, former L.A. cop uh, Chris Dorner, who he mentions by name in his routine in L.A. They, they were just using their training as police or military to respond to acts of terror. So those police officers that were murdered were terrorists. And what, that was a justified killing. I mean, this wasn't a press conference. It wasn't a Q&A session. So I don't know exactly what Chappelle meant. But it's hard to take away the clip that from that clip that you just heard. Anything other than some sort of rationalization for a general argument of victimization in mass and, and permanent victimhood in mass. So there's a, a couple of different philosophies there. The Jonathan Harmon philosophy as handed down from his father or the the Dave Chappelle philosophy about what's happening currently which do you think is more productive you're listening to the Dan Proft show on the Salem radio network Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, the bending of knees is only increasing in pace, uh, going so far as evangelical ministers who got a real tongue lashing in print by former Oklahoma Wesleyan President Everett Piper, evangelical Christian himself. Dear woke evangelical pastors, Piper writes in the Washington Times, what in the world is wrong with you? Why, in God's name, would you stand in solidarity with an organization that seeks the destruction of Christianity? What happened to you? When did you lose your conviction? When were you given over to a reprobate mind? When did your heart of flesh become a heart of stone? When did you lose your soul? This in response to what uh, Piper, I think, rightly calls the pandering of evangelical pastors to Black Lives Matter, which, as we've talked about in this show, we've read right from their website and their what we believe statement has uh, very little to do with police reform and much more to do with a grander vision of cultural Marxism in America, including destroying the nuclear family, which is a part and parcel, I would argue, of America's cultural rot across the racial divide. Well, um, obviously, if evangelical pastors are doing it, you can only imagine what Hollywood is doing. Well, you don't have to. They put together a PSA, some of your favorite B-list celebrities, including uh, Aaron Paul, who this, frankly, this is his best work since Breaking Bad. Take a listen. I take responsibility. I take responsibility. I take 
responsibility. I take responsibility for every unchecked moment, for every time it was easier to ignore than to call it out for what it was. Every not-so-funny joke, every unfair stereotype, every blatant injustice, no matter how big or small. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Christian Toto. He's the editor of HollywoodandToto.com. Christian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. I take responsibility for this appearance. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. I don't uh, throw the word hero around loosely, Christian, but uh, you, my friend. Yeah, so um, you're not surprised to hear from Hollywood, but the Hollywood bend-the-knee culture in the face of any demand, regardless of its legitimacy from the left, based on race or gender identif- or, or sexual orientation or gender identification, uh, now you've got everybody doing it. Yeah, and by the way, just sort of a big picture look at these videos, celebrity PSAs are very consistent. You have actors and actresses not wearing makeup, looking unkempt, a lot of repeating certain phrases. It's almost comical in how they adhere to this particular, almost like a blueprint for making these videos. And above and beyond the content, I just find that very funny. There was a conservative response, gosh, maybe three, four years ago, maybe even more, where they mocked this whole yes, template. Right. Very funny. But Hollywood uh, still has cultural sway because now you got evangelical pastors doing it as ever Piper opined. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things here is that when it comes to apologies, first of all, I would love to be in a culture that is genuinely able to forgive, mm. to appreciate and respond to a, a heartfelt apology. That's part of this. But also, there are times where it's an opinion. It's a fairly valid opinion. In the case of Drew Brees, you could agree that the flag should be respected. You can say that the flag is a symbol of some sort of cultural rot. These are all opinions. You could argue them, you could discuss them, but they're not out of bounds. And I think what we're seeing now is that the apology culture is saying, no, these opinions are out of bounds, and these opinions are the ones you can say. Well, and I think that's the really crazy part. And, and I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise because Black Lives Matter, which has newfound popularity and uh, legitimacy as a result, has made it clear through their uh, existence since the uh, Trayvon Martin killing that uh, they are supportive of eliminating dissent. Not robust debate, not arguing. They are in support of eliminating uh, opinions that don't comport with their own. Well, that's part of the problem because that's a wider issue on the left. I mean, we see it across the board. We're seeing it on college campuses, and now we're seeing it in you know, on cities across the country. If you go to a college campus and you say a right-of-center opinion, there's a chance you'll get attacked or shouted down or your, your speech will get yanked or you won't have enough security to protect you. That's speech. These aren't, you know, this is a Ben Shapiro type who is as intellectual as humanly possible. He's allowed to share his opinions, but no, now he's not. And that's what we're seeing in the public square. You know, the movie No Safe Spaces came out last year. Right. I, I try to rally people around it because it was an important film. Well, that was basically a, a, um, a crystal ball into what we're seeing right now. You can't say X, you can't say Y, you can only say Z. And you better stick to Z, as J.K. Rowling has found. J.K. Rowling has been very progressive, very pro-trans rights, but she said the wrong thing recently, and they are trying to cancel her with an, with a, an emphasis and a speed I, I can't imagine. Well, and when we come back, uh, one of the other things you can't do is say nothing. You're not allowed to say nothing anymore either, which is a, a bit of a new wrinkle. More with Christian Toto, editor of HollywoodInToto.com, right after this. Tonight. 
good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Christian Toto, the editor of HollywoodInToto.com. And when we were talking about free speech before the break, and one of the, the new wrinkles is you're not allowed to not say anything. You're not allowed to say the wrong thing. You're also not allowed to not say what is deemed the right thing by the cultural mavens. As Andrew Sullivan writes in The New Yorker about the, one of the new slogans du jour, white silence equals violence. Uh, is a slogan chanted and displayed in every one of these marches. It is very reminiscent of totalitarian states where you have to compete to broadcast your fealty to the cause. Uh, It is uh, Stalin-esque in the sense of, you know, don't be the last one to stop clapping. Uh, I'm sure, excuse me, don't be the first one to stop clapping, right? Uh, And that's, I think, what Sullivan is getting to, Christian. Yeah, you know, one of the, uh, the few encouraging signs here is that you're seeing people on the left really kind of uh, attack this and question it, what's going on in the culture. Andrew Sullivan's a little bit all over the map at times, so uh, maybe he's not the perfect example, but I often point to Ricky Gervais, who is a left of center soul. He's certainly no fan of President Trump, and I think he and I would agree on very little politically, but he has been a staunch uh, proponent of free speech, free expression. Uh, He recently gave an interview. He talked about how when they, the whole phobic thing that they talk about, it's all to shut people up. They don't want you to speak. So if they attack his jokes, they don't analyze his jokes. They don't realize, hey, maybe he's making fun of the bigots. Maybe he's trying to promote free speech. So a lot of nuance goes out the window with this whole cancel culture mentality. But we are seeing a few people on the left who are joining uh, people on the right and, and, and saying this is wrong and we need more of that. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's the old uh, the argument has been uh, circling for really several years now. I mean, great uh, artists, comedians, uh, filmmakers, Mel Brooks, Jackie Mason, Don Rickles. Would, would they have careers today? I, I can't see how they would. Yeah. You know, if I'm a, a, a screenwriter, a comedian, I would be really scared every time I jot some notes down, every time I kind of sit down in front of my laptop trying to write a, a new screenplay because you know what's going to go on is going to be examined by the culture and say, you can't say this, you can't say that. I mean, that is not good for creativity. It's not good for free speech. And it's not good for the arts. And that you would think that these celebrities would be on the front lines of this debate saying, you know, I don't agree with conservatives. I don't believe this or that. But by golly, we need to kind of stand up for free expression. They're all scared. And they know because they said if they say the wrong thing, they get in trouble. Just Days ago, Spike Lee said, I, you know, I, I don't think that Woody Allen should be canceled. Spike Lee, who's one of the biggest names in Hollywood, apologized profusely. Was it 24 hours later? Was it less? It was, uh, he broke a land speed record in apologizing for just stating his opinion. That's where we are. And uh, Dave Chappelle uh, had just released a, a special, eight minutes and 46 seconds, of course, referencing the amount of time that Uh, Derek Chauvin had his knee on George Floyd's neck and uh, he responded to uh, Don Lamone's call for celebrity engagement here. Thusly, I want you to listen to this if you haven't already heard it, seen it and uh, get your reaction. Don Lemon, that hotbed of reality. 
He says, where are all these celebrities? Why aren't you talking? This said everybody. I was screaming at the TV. I dare you to say me. I dare you. Has anyone ever listened to me do comedy? Have I not ever said anything about these things before? So now all of a sudden, this expects me to step in front of the streets and talk over the work these people are doing as a celebrity? Ask me, do you want to see a celebrity right now? Do we give a f what Ja Rule thinks? Does it matter about celebrity? No. This is the streets talking for themselves. They don't need me right now. I kept my mouth shut. And I'll still keep my mouth shut. How do you uh, receive that, Christian? Well, I mean, he's on to an interesting point. First of all, just because you're a celebrity doesn't mean you have the right opinion or the wrong opinion or any opinion or even a well-thought-out opinion. Uh, also, the reason why Don Lemon is saying that because he knows that Hollywood is you know, rigorously left of center and he's going to approve of the message. Plus, he wants yeah. to suck up yeah. to them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that, that's true, obviously. Listen, the media uses, and the, and the news media particularly, uses celebrities to amplify the messages that they want to send but they often are too afraid of sending it directly. So if you're going to quote Don, uh, you know, Robert De Niro blasting President Trump for the 48th time, I'm pretty sure that's not a news story, but I think the people who were reporting on it, they want to get that message out. Now, if a lot of celebrities came out and said, you know what, I don't like this autonomous zone in Seattle, and I think the violence and the looting is wrong, you would see the news media turn on these celebrities and say, hey, Keep quiet, you know, shut up and sing, as they say. So it, it, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on here. Uh, I also wanted to get your take uh, as a media maven yourself on uh, Matt Taibbi. He may be the next uh, man on the left to be uh, Siberian. Uh, he, uh, he had a piece uh, at his site, the American press is destroying itself. I mean, this is somebody who's former political beat writer of sorts for the, for Rolling Stone and has written books, you know, podcaster, all that stuff. But a well-established and respected journalist on the left, but liberal, like the way Sullivan, Andrew Sullivan, has been most of the time over the last 25 years. Uh, he writes this about the American press destroying himself, does Taibbi. It, it feels liberating to say after years of tiptoeing around the fact that we're watching an intellectual revolution, but the American left has lost its mind. It's become a cowardly mob of upper-class social media addicts Twitter robes Pierre's who move from discipline to discipline, torching reputations and jobs with breathtaking casualness. And that's sort of what you were just referencing, Christian, with the attacks that J.K. Rowling is currently uh, fielding. That particular piece, I read I read it all and it was it was gargantuan in size and worth every every uh, syllable matters because, like you said, here's a person on the left. It also, uh, Glenn Greenwald is another liberal yes. journalist who has been kind of beating this same drum. So when they say it, when people on the hard left are saying it, you know there's an issue. And boy, I just wish more journalists would sit down, read that with an open mind and think, gosh, I, I, he't right. Yeah, but because it's, I don't know how to interpret it any other way. And the only problem is you're, somebody's going to have to sit with them to explain to them who Robespierre was. That's the uh, only challenge. <laughs> That's part of the problem. He is uh, Christian Toto, the editor of HollywoodInToto.com. Christian, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Take care.
listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, another installment where you can uh, bask in the tolerance and high-mindedness of the leftist. Uh, this uh, Lindsay Scariano, or Scarino, exactly the pronunciation of her name, she tweeted a video of her unpleasant interaction with a couple of Trump fans on a Florida beach that were riding buggies around with, like, an American flag and Trump flag. They rode past her sitting in a beach chair. Now, remember, she tweeted this out, uh, her verbal assault on these two Trump supporters, this uh, older woman and older man on these little beach scooters. She tweeted this out because she thought this put her in a good light. That's perhaps the most telling thing about this. Can I help you? Yes. Yeah. Go work out instead of supporting Trump. Disgusting. That's a sign for hate. Yourself. Go yourself. Do you want me to cough on you? Because I will. What's that? <laughs> what I do with my stimulus check? I paid my f***ing bills. Trump. He's a just like you. What a delicate little flower she is. She's going to make some guy very, very happy. Yeah, sheer awful was the, the what the woman said back at her. You know, I'd say that's an understatement, but an example, an example of what is preached versus what is practiced. And by the way, it's just interesting to see people being willing to uh, ride a, 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 on the beach on a vehicle with a Trump flag, knowing perhaps the heat they're going to take. Florida is not exactly uh, without its uh, Democrats and particularly foul mouth variety as well. And it's also interesting, you know, perhaps the silent Trump supporters are maybe becoming less willing to be silent. Southeastern Michigan, two mile long boat, MAGA boat parade boasting to, uh, to I should say, to celebrate Trump's 74th birthday. This uh, I was reading at the sun, the dash dot com. Uh, Boats made their way from McCray Harbor Marina in Macomb County's Harrison Township toward the Ambassador Bridge in Detroit. Uh, And this was the the Michigan Conservative Coalition and Michigan Trump Republicans Make America Great Again boat parade. Two thousand boats and all sporting Trump flags in southeastern Michigan. That's a pretty good sign that uh, despite maybe the sense you're getting from the D.C. press corps and some weak need Republicans, there's that we've got a long way to go. In this election, and uh, as long as Trump, as Kim Strasser wrote in the Wall Street Journal last week, continues to frame the choice rather than allowing Biden and company to make it a referendum on him, uh, there is uh, every reason to believe Trump is poised for re-election. Certainly, if uh, those uh, Florida beachgoers and Michigan boaters have anything to say about it, this is Dan Proft. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com as well as at Dan Proft Show on social media. And it was an eventful uh, first weekend for the uh, independent nation of Chaz in the center of Seattle. So eventful that uh, apparently is working under a new name. This from uh, Carmen Best, the Seattle police chief on Face the Nation over the weekend. Well, there are people who have um, occupied the area. Uh, My understanding is they've actually changed the name to the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest area. There are a lot of folks there, a lot of differing objectives and agendas uh, of people who have congregated into the area. Um, One of our real challenges there is trying to determine who is a leader or an influencer um, that seems to change uh, daily. Uh, I know that many of our city officials and others are trying to establish some sort of communication with someone who can um, give us some direction about what the intent is and how we might move forward. That is one supine police chief, isn't it? And uh, I don't envy her position with uh, a mayor like Jenny Durkin and a city council such as is constituted in Seattle. I uh, would uh, hasten to add, uh, we know one of the influences is rapper Raz Simone. He, he had uh, a uh, relatively uh, glowing interview in Forbes that we'll get to in a second. But what was going on over the weekend in addition to uh, Raz uh, trying to uh, organize the place? <laughs> you had uh, some interesting performance art. I know from some of the protesters they take a and the occupiers, they take offense to the idea that this is a street festival or something akin to that, which is how the mayor has characterized it. This performance art was worthy of a street festival. I call this uh, reparation play acting. I want you to find by the time you leave this autonomous zone, I want you to give $10 to one African-American person from this autonomous zone. And if you find that's difficult, if you find it's hard for you to give $10 to people of color, to black people especially, you have to think really critically about in the future, are you going to actually give up power and land and capital when you have it? If if you have a hard time giving up $10, you got to think about, are you really down with this struggle? Are you really down with the movement? Because if that is a challenge for you, then I'm unsure if you're in the right place. Oh, boy. So find Tough. an African-American person. The white people, I see you. I see every single one of you. And I remember your faces. You find that African-American person and you give them $10. Cash app, Venmo, $10 in your pocket. That's my challenge to you. Do it. I think he lost that crowd when he demanded they think critically. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Scott McKay, a publisher at The Hayride and contributor to The American Spectator. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it's good. Uh, I mean, maybe not as good as uh, I'm not doing things <laughs> as momentous as uh, starting a nation in, in the middle of Chicago, the way that uh, Raz Simone and uh, friends have in the, the middle of Seattle, but uh, otherwise pretty good. Uh, um, now, that this has not been necessarily violent, but it is sort of a hot mess in the middle of Seattle. And uh, I uh, tackled this a, a bit in the first hour of the program. 
you know, President Trump has demanded that uh, the, the Seattle authorities get control of their city, return the police precinct to the control of the police department. But you know what? I mean, if they don't want to, then why not leave them to their own devices? Well, I mean, because this could spread elsewhere and become a real mess. I mean, there's definitely a question as to whether or not it's worse to have this go on all over the country or to watch this thing descend into the madness and chaos that it's inevitably going to descend into. I mean, there's definitely the more that comes out of this Chaz or Chopa or whatever the name of this thing is going to be going forward. I call it Antifa Stan. But as days go by, you're going to see more and more stupidity and insanity from these people. And I think the rest of the country is going to look at that turn away in horror and, you know, vote out as many Democrats as they can. Well, um, well, simply I'm, because the Democrat Party is is part and parcel of this. I mean, you know, that's the problem, right? I mean, Jenny Durkin, the mayor of Seattle and Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, should have put this thing to bed already. The fact that they aren't lends the pretty decent suggestion that these guys are all for something like this happening across the country. Jack Kelly, who is a, uh, a executive recruiter of a global search firm. He writes for Forbes magazine. He did an interview on Friday with Raz Simone, the warlord in charge of Chaz. And this is how he described him. Simone shared his views on what's really going on in Chaz. He offered thoughtful suggestions for initiating proactive and positive changes, particularly as it relates to the push to defend, to defund or abolish the police. He came across as gregarious, open-minded, intelligent, enlightened, street smart, and business-minded person. So, I mean, if, you know, he passes uh, muster with uh, Forbes when it comes to, I don't know, being uh, a ruling feudal lord in the middle of Seattle, then um, uh, why not let Raz and Jenny Durkin work it out? Well, I mean, there is that. My suggestion, if you want to go that route, is, yeah, give it time, and you will find out that Raz Simone is you know not as technocratic a freaking leader as you expect. I mean, I think that part of this this thing is is you've got an entire group of people almost none of whom can do a proper job at productive work and so it's not a surprise that they're being led by although they swear up and down that they're not being led by anyone uh they're being led by a guy who's a rapper well they've they figured something out right they figured out that uh if you make these demands particularly uh to white champagne socialist like Jenny Durkin, who incredibly is a former U.S. attorney. I mean, just remarkable. Right. Uh, then you will see the knee bend. We saw there's a, a story on the other side of the country in Florida over the weekend. All 10 members of the SWAT team at Hallandale Beach Police Department resigned Friday in response to their police chief kneeling alongside Black Lives Matter protesters. You know, this is this is bend the knee or be branded. That's right. And what you have is you've you've got a lot of people who are political leaders that managed to get elected because they were the least bad option. And the country is starting to descend into some sort of cultural Marxist swamp at this point. And what you're finding is, I mean, there are there are people that are capable of standing up and being leaders. But unfortunately, very few of them actually run major cities. And, you know, like we have this going on in New Orleans, they actually took a statue of John McDonough, 
who was a uh, he was a slave owner back in the early part of the 19th century. But McDonald was the guy who created the public school system in New Orleans, and he also freed all of his slaves after teaching them skilled trades. But they took his statue and they threw it in the Mississippi River. I, you know, and I mean, in Philadelphia, they they defaced the statue of an abolitionist. I mean, most of these people, they don't know anything about history. They certainly don't any, don't know anything about civics. All they know is they have grievances and they're acting out on those. And the failure to provide law and order for everyone else in all of these cities is going to have some pretty serious consequences down the road. I mean, over in Chicago, and I don't need to tell you your business, but there's Lori Lightfoot running around talking about, oh, well, I'm going to get Walmart back into South Chicago. Mm-hmm. I haven't followed up on this since Thursday or Friday. Has Walmart issued any statements on that? That's uh, still a pending matter. Um, they're probably remembering fondly how they were. Uh, there was an attempt for years to freeze them out of Chicago by these the same sort of political leaders, the same you know ideological That's perspective, right. and now they're begging them to stay. I'm sure they find well, the irony I, delightful. Well, I'm sure, and you know, I'm sure that these were stores where the shrinkage rate was already extremely high, uh, and then the shrinkage rate became 100 percent when when it was time to go for a riot. And the answer is, if you're Walmart or really any of these other merchants that have been looted, burned out, what have you, in, in some of these cities across the country, you know, the answer is, yeah, why would we go back? I mean, these are places where the people over there disrespect us so much that they would just come and rifle through our store at the first, you know, sign of something we had nothing to do with. Um, you know, hey, let's decamp for the suburbs. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I mean, if you own a business in this, whatever, this occupied freaking zone or whatever in Seattle, are you going to re? start your business when this thing uh, finally peters out? The answer is probably not. I mean, most of these people, you know, if there's small businesses in that area, they're probably going to go out of business anyway. And now you've got people trying to shake them down and extort them for quote unquote taxes or whatever. Um, And then if nothing is done about that, you're not going to, Keep your business there if, in the event that this could ever happen again. Scott McKay, publisher at The Hayride and contributor to The American Spectator. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Dan. Take care. Take care. Listen to podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Anybody who listens to this show knows my rule on sports metaphors for politics. I loathe them except when I use them. Well, uh, I have a similar rule when it comes to uh, uh, fables involving animals as a proxy for political discourse. I loathe them except when David Devil uses them. Senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative Editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture and visiting professor at the University of St. Thomas. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Dan. Glad to be here. Um, So the fable of the chicken and the pig, uh, remind those not familiar with it what it is and uh, why it pertains to uh, the political landscape at present. Yeah, a lot of people have probably heard it in uh, sort of bland business speeches and perhaps even sports talks. But the story essentially goes like this. A chicken and a pig are walking down the road. 
And the chicken turns to the pig and says, hey, let's start a business. And the pig says, that sounds great. What is it? And the chicken says, it's a restaurant. We're going to call it Ham and Eggs. And the pig says, no, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to get into that. It sounds like you're only going to be involved and I'm going to be committed. <laughs> yes, very good. And and so uh, who are the chickens and who are the pigs in the political context? Well, I, you know, I think that the chickens in the political context are basically those in what a lot of people like to call the overclass or the ruling class who uh, are making a lot of deals like this with with American citizens saying, well, you know, we're going to be the ones who are building a great future tomorrow and you're going to sacrifice. And it goes back a a long way. But I mean, you know, I think we can see it, particularly since the 1960s in people who say, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to build a bright new post-marriage and family future. Oh, by the way, we're going to keep getting married and following these sorts of rules, but you don't. And people end up poor. Oh, by the way, we're going to be building a great new public education fig, uh, future. Well, we're going to put our kids in Tony suburban public schools or put them in very ritzy private schools, but you're going to be stuck in the same old, same old. And today I think we've seen it uh, most in the last few months with people who say, well, we're going to flatten the curve and protect everybody. So we're going to shut down your business and you're not going to get paid, but don't worry, our business or our uh, you know, government paychecks are going to keep coming. And then finally, we've seen it in the in the protests and indeed the riots after the George Floyd episode, where we have prominent celebrities, politicians, media figures, professors saying, oh, isn't this wonderful? Burn it all down, burn it all down. And then suddenly they don't they don't want to have their own uh, neighborhoods burned down or their own stores burned down. So they're essentially saying, you know, we're going to let your bacon get fried. But, you know, we'll we'll maybe give something on the side very destructive. Uh, It is. And uh, just how destructive, just to put some numbers to it uh, out uh, today from February to April, according to uh, analysis from the National Bureau of Economic Research, the number of active black business owners fell 41 percent. That is a precipitous decline in the period of 90 days. And uh, not, you know, not the only I mean, and again, the, uh, the the politicians, the managerial class, but particularly those in public office, these are their constituents. These are who, you know, they're fighting to serve because they're underserved. 441,000 black business owners disappeared. Latino businesses, 32% down. Immigrants, 36% down. Women, 25% down. And of course, these are uh, not uh, the necessarily the most well-heeled business owner operators either. They were the least able to withstand that sort of uh, lockdown for that duration. That's right. I mean, it's, I, you know, I've seen figures that across the country, and this was probably a week and a half ago, over 100,000 businesses have closed permanently, you know, not even breaking it down by, by race or ethnicity and things like that. So, you know, we've seen it on both fronts, on the coronavirus front, but then especially on this one. And part of the reason why I say the chickens are a ruling class, I think that it's, it's really more of a class issue than a race issue. Um, Chris Martin Palmer, who's a, an ESPN sports writer, was one of the most famous during the riots. He tweeted uh, during uh, May 28th when the Twin Cities, where I live, was on fire. He tweeted a picture of a 189-unit low-income housing building that was just about to be finished for a rough neighborhood in Minneapolis. And he, he tweeted, burn it down, burn it all down. You know, he's a black man, but he's part of that ruling class. He's, you know, it's kind of entertainment celebrity. And he was willing to say that, even though 
the people whose whose livelihoods and whose potential homes were being burned down were were also uh, poor people of color, as they say. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think that it, it has a lot to do with you know with class distinctions today and those who have risen to the top and now feel like they have the ability to tell everybody else, oh well, don't worry, we'll build a bright future, but. But, you know, we're going to burn your part down. Well, I mean, that's what uh, Michael Lind uh, from University of Texas ar- argues, right, that the divide in America is not along racial or or gender or orientation lines. It's uh, those who have a college degree versus those who don't, basically. That's correct. And, he, you know, Michael Lind's been in one, uh, Joel Kotkin yeah. uh, from out of Chapman University, uh, the great Angelo Cotavilla of the Claremont Institute, and a number of these people have been identifying this problem for for a while and saying, look, the narrative that we have that everything is about race, it is, you know, there obviously, you know, not all racial problems have been solved. But if you really want to see what's dividing Americans, it, it, it is that having a college degree, being in that world. And the irony is that in so many cases, the people who think they're part of the ruling class often have their own, you know, they're going to get their own bacon fried <laughs> eventually. Uh, but they don't know it because they think, oh, well, I, you know, I have a college degree. I, you know, I'm part of the, the information class. Well, and, and, is, and isn't there a, a real uh, uh, not very subtle sense of entitlement there? You know, I can't be hurt because I've got this credential and that credential entitles me to certain things, regardless of the nature of policies uh, and the impact on other people or regardless of my own performance, even. That's correct. I mean, it's you know, I mean, I'm in the academy and everybody knows all of the various academics across the country and around the world who feel that sense of entitlement. They think that, you know, I mean, we're, we're used to things like tenure, which means, you know, once I've been employed for a while and proven I can do a good job, then nothing can touch me. And the reality is, is that, that markets and societal developments can negate that. But you're right. They feel that this credential, uh, you know, entitles them to always be on top and always be, you know, people like to talk about privilege, and, you know, they often again, they often attach it simply to racial terms. But really, this is the kind of privilege that I think is so, so obvious uh, that people don't really notice. And yet you start to notice it when you have something like these riots and the people are coming out of the woodwork to say, well, it's OK for you, but not for me. And don't worry, it's never, you know, do you see do, do you see a, a reckoning for academia in the near term? Oh, yeah. I mean, I. You know, a number of a number of people have been predicting for years that the number of American universities would essentially, you know, be cut in half by 2030. Uh, and you know, with our response to the coronavirus and also the increasing radicalization of many of many universities, which you know starts to starts to wear on people, uh, a lot of people now are thinking that it, you know the reckoning is going to come a lot quicker. The bubble is going to be popped uh, very soon. I mean, I've seen for this next fall predictions that between 200 uh, to maybe a thousand colleges in the U.S. could end up being closed or merged into something else. And a lot of the people who thought that they were untouchable because they were tenured uh, are going to find out that, no, that's not the way it works, actually. He is David Devil, senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative, editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, and visiting professor at the University of St. Thomas, which we hope survives. Uh, David Devil, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. A uh, compelling research out of the University Hospital in Zurich, Switzerland, finds that um, 60% of people may be naturally resistant to COVID-19. And the majority of people may already have resistance based on previous infections, uh, find these, this uh, team of scientists that uh, put together a report finding that only uh, that COVID-19 specific antibodies only appear in the most severe cases, which is about one in five. The authors infer from this that antibodies are inexplicably absent from the majority of mild cases of COVID-19. Uh, and um, uh, the conclusion, if this turns out to be uh, replicable, the evidence continues to mount that the original estimates of the danger posed by the virus were massively exaggerated. Well, well, yeah, if that study is true, I would say massively exaggerated. And it certainly is important to understand that because it will hopefully at least inform not only the phased in reopenings, but what those reopenings look like in terms of capacity limitations at restaurants or in public transportation and the like. So this is hugely important in terms of the nature of our recovery, as well as just the quality of our life. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Phil Magnus. He is a senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research and the author of The 1619 Project, A Critique. Philip Magnus, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. How about uh, the, uh, the data that's coming out, particularly uh, this uh, research uh, against the backdrop of uh, much worry, both in the markets and in political circles, about a spike in cases that was anticipated with uh, states uh, reopening civilian life. Right. It's not only uh, reopening that's, uh, that's driving some of the spike in cases. We're also seeing massive increases in testing. And, you know, if you test more in the general population, you're going to get uh, positive hits in terms of people that actually have the disease. So uh, maybe a statistical artifact that's going on there. But uh, there are some other developments that have happened, I'd say, in the past two to three weeks. Uh, some studies have started to come out asking the question of what's the effectiveness of these lockdowns. Uh, one in particular from the National Bureau of Economic Research uh, was released just last week. They looked at the state of Wisconsin, which uh, if you remember uh, a little over a month ago, the state of Wisconsin Supreme Court basically struck down the lockdowns in a, uh, a single sweeping decision. Uh, they ruled that it was unconstitutional, and that night there were people congregating at bars and restaurants that had been closed for several months, and everyone in the media was predicting that this was going to have this giant uh, COVID outbreak effect that followed from uh, what was uh, called a disastrous decision by the Supreme Court. Uh, well, the study has actually compared that to uh, the reality of the data, and there's basically no discernible change in the trajectory of the disease that came after the removal of these lockdowns, it seems to be pretty strong evidence that the uh, effectiveness of the lockdowns themselves was vastly overstated by the epidemiology profession when they put them in place. And uh, Scott Gottlieb, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA director uh, writing in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, what we're seeing right now isn't a second wave at all. It's a series of spikes off the first surge. And he right. writes, in the coming months, some states will see infections rise while others fall. The trick will be to manage the constant risk of COVID while restarting normal life. But what you're suggesting is that should have been the trick from the beginning. Right. Uh, the strategy that we had the best evidence behind 
you know, back in January and February, we knew that this thing was very dangerous to elderly people, people with comorbidities, uh, in particular nursing homes. To remember the first outbreak in the United States was a nursing home in Washington State, but it's just devastated. And that seems to somehow have been the, uh, not only cast aside from the policy responses, but you started to get some of the things like what uh, Governor Cuomo did in New York of actually ordering nursing homes to readmit patients that had tested positive for COVID. And what we've seen over the last two months is that this policy misstep has just ravaged nursing homes across the country to where they are by far the single biggest uh, area of outbreaks of, of the disease, even though it's a, uh, a tiny fraction of the population. So it's almost like two pandemics are playing up simultaneously. One that's a really severe and serious one taking place in nursing homes, and then another milder pandemic that's hitting the general population but is more in line with uh, you know, other diseases that we see. When we come back with Phil Magnus, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research, I want to talk a little bit about uh, his other work on the 1619 Project, given that that project is ascendant as it's its founder, along with Black Lives Matter in these divisive times along racial lines. More with Phil Magnus right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we're speaking with philip magnus senior research fellow at the american institute for economic research and author of the 1619 project a critique uh, Philip, uh, with another police-involved shooting on Friday night, this the Richard Brooks case out of Atlanta, uh, the protesting, the uh, family and the family attorney speaking out this morning, uh, charges p- potentially forthcoming against the officer who was fired, who f- fired the fatal shots that uh, took uh, Mr. Brooks's life. You've had over the last couple of weeks of unrest, and this will more than likely continue, the ascendancy of Nicole Hannah-Jones, the Pulitzer Prize-winning founder of the 1619 Project, which seeks to redefine the real birth of America as the year 1619. And uh, Black Lives Matter as well uh, as uh, you know, myriad other groups that are sort of all somewhat similarly uh, inclined. But it's really Nicole Hannah-Jones as sort of the intellectual firepower behind uh, Black Lives Matter, even though uh, she comes a little bit after its founding some six or seven years ago. Give us a little bit of the the profile on the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones' scholarship, and uh, why this is uh, a force that has to be addressed going forward as we talk about race relations and American history uh, in that context. First of the uh, 1619 Project was a uh, New York Times Magazine release that came out last uh, August and September of uh, 2019, and it was basically an attempt to redefine and reorient the history of the United States around the legacy of slavery. Uh, at least on the surface, there's a very valid reason to uh, to be investigating these topics. Uh, the legacy of slavery uh, is one of the great problems of American history, and we see in recent incidents, even up to uh, the George Floyd killing, 
that uh, many legacies that come out of slavery and come out of discrimination that follow it are still with us. So uh, at least on the surface, I think there's some validity to investigate these issues. The problem with the 1619 project, and this was uh, what Nicole Hannah-Jones put forth as her journalistic endeavor since one of Pulitzer Prize, is that it took what's a very worthyable area of historical inquiry and really weaponized it in the political direction. It started using uh, the legacy and history of slavery as something of a platform that, uh, rather than investigating injustices and their roots, really looks a lot more like uh, the left wing of the Democratic Party's uh, political platform. So uh, she's basically used the project to, to call for things like higher taxes, for universal health care, things that resemble the Green New Deal more so than a, uh, a measured historical inquiry of these serious subjects. And I think that's where the project really got into trouble. So after it was published, uh, several historians, myself included, started probing into some of the claims that she was making about, uh, for example, tying the American Revolution to a defense of slavery or asserting that slavery is the essence of, uh, of free market capitalism. Um, that all that we know today about our economy emerges from the 19th century slave system. So uh, some really ostentatious historical claims that she was being, uh, using the project to promote. But under scrutiny, these claims seem to start falling apart over and over and over again. We find cases of evidence being misused or overstated. We find cases of historical error. And the oddity of this is the New York Times, when confronted with it, really doubled down. Uh, they really piled on to the narrative that she was spinning, even in the face of criticism from some of our uh, our most eminent historians in the United States. So it's not just um, people like myself, but uh, Pulitzer Prize winners such as James McPherson and Gordon Wood. Uh, these are Ivy League historians that have been working on uh, on these subjects. They're considered kind of like the leading experts in the uh, the field, and both of them also are, are kind of of the center left of the political uh, spectrum. But uh, they came out in criticism of it. I came out in criticism of it across the board, uh, deep critiques of misuses of historical facts. And yet the New York Times seems undeterred. Well, those are just those academics are are so much uh, living monuments uh, to be discarded. Uh, they're just lucky they're <laughs> not getting beheaded. Uh, right. I mean, because I mean, Kirsten Powers argues in the USA Today over the weekend uh, as others are arguing in, in uh, support of this sort of indiscriminate uh, taking down of monuments, whether an abolitionist or a slave owner really doesn't matter because you're not exactly dealing with a bunch of history buffs on the street, uh, that uh, it's time to start America anew. Right, right. So that's really concerning about some of the way the protest has played out. I like to point to an incident that happened in Boston. Um, in downtown Boston, there's a monument to the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, which was the uh, the famous African American uh, unit that uh, is featured in the film Glory, so uh, very much aligned with the abolition cause, with the history of anti-slavery, and yet these protesters came along and they they started spray painting and damaging the monument. Now it's uh, it's something that's probably going to have tens of thousands of dollars required to repair it. Uh, we've seen similar incidents. So uh, the abolitionist uh, poet John Greenleaf uh, Whittier. Had his monument vandalized the other day. There was another abolitionist in in uh, Philadelphia that had been a major philanthropist of the anti-slavery cause. His monument was targeted. So it's so it's almost like this uh, French Revolutionary style spirit has has moved into uh, what otherwise 
might have been a, a protest movement with some valid causes and concerns to raise. But that spirit's moved in, and now it's just like a, a, a mass iconoclasm on American history of smashing anything and everything that uh, we had previously commemorated, whether it's connected to slavery or abolitionism or something completely unrelated. And, and so this academic uh, movement, uh, you know, White Fragility, Robin DiAngelo, uh, the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, you know, where does this end in your view? Or where do, where do they, where would they like it to end? Where is it heading? Well, uh, the 1619 Project has been an, a very aggressive move to uh, incorporate it into K through 12 uh, school curricula to uh, rebuild American history lesson plans around it, which I, I see as a problem insofar as it's simply not good history. It's not something that's built on a scholarly basis. It's political activism inserted into history, and that political activism is very much oriented to the present day, not our understanding of the past. So there's, there's a real danger in taking what should be instructional material from the K-12 curriculum and basically weaponizing it to uh, advocate for left-wing, anti-capitalist, uh, pro-taxation, pro-big government politics. He is Philip Magnus, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research and author of The 1619 Project, A Critique. Philip Magnus, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, we'll do a quickie to close the show. Uh, two stories. Uh, Trump saying he's no longer going to watch the U.S. national soccer teams after they rescinded their policy requiring players to stand for the anthem. Uh, <laughs> sort of remarkable. The national team is not going to require uh, its team members, male and female, to uh, respect the anthem, to stand for the anthem out of respect for the country they're representing. Uh, It's a remarkable turn, uh, as if anything could make soccer less watchable, they found it. But even less watchable than soccer turns out to be ESPN. Clay Travis, who's been on this kick for a long time from OutKick, uh, at OutKick.com, OutKick Sports, uh, ESPN ratings tanking. Uh, on Wednesday of last week, ESPN Studio Programming, which uh, he has long called MS ESPN, MS ESPN's woke center, hit a 41-year ratings low. In the entire history of the network existing, it has never had lower overall studio ratings than it did last week. Uh, he, he provided some context too. first take was the highest rated ESPN show all day, posting 211,000 viewers. That was the 93rd highest rated program on all of cable. Uh, putting those uh, numbers in context, Jay Leno's garage on CNBC soundly defeated first take. So did something called Ant Anstead master mechanic on a channel called motor trend, which Clay Travis writes. I didn't even know it was a cable channel, much less a show. And he goes through some of the other 
ratings for some of the other programs. Uh, uh, all-time lows over the past two weeks. All-time lows. Uh, Travis's commentary. It's an ominous sign for sports ratings to be tanking as sports prepare to return to play. There are many serious things going on in our country right now. And the vast majority of sports fans know where to find news about serious things going on in the world. That's why cable news ratings have skyrocketed. But sports fans don't want their sports commentators to be weighing in on non-sports news on sports networks. The ratings are clear about that. So ESPN may be a big business that doesn't survive uh, the lockdown and the unrest, uh, the combination of the two, because of how it responded. Uh here we are, right back where we were several years ago when Caitlyn Jenner was getting an ESPY on ESPN. Woke Center fails every time ESPN embraces it. The uh, politicization of sports, uh, I think Clay Travis is right, and frankly, I don't know why those uh, sports commentators or broadcasters would want to delve into that area as well, lest they suffer the fate of the Sacra- former Sacramento Kings uh, announcer for saying the wrong thing even when you're just trying to offer a unifying bromide like All Lives Matter. Fascinating stuff, uh, and we hope we brought you enough fascinating stuff on this installment of the Dan Prof Show to bring you back tomorrow for more. Thank you for joining us. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.